and welcome to Out of Silence. This is our second podcast. I'm Kate McLaughlin, Professor of English Literature at the University of Oxford, and I'm joined by Alex Harris, who's Professor of English Literature at the University of Birmingham. Hello, Alex. Hello, Kate. So in this podcast, we're going to be looking at an extract from Virginia Woolf's last novel, Between the Acts. Alex, could you contextualise that for us to start with? Yes, it's set on a June day in 1939, and Woolf was writing most of the novel during the Second World War, very, very conscious of interrupted peace. And at the centre of this novel is a pageant, a village community putting on a show about English history. And the various actors have gone through the periods of history, dressing up as, as Queen Elizabeth, sucking peppermints when they're meant to be on stage, all the rest of it. And after the Victorian section, there's a strange pause and the audience gets a bit fidgety and impatient. And then we realise that the director of this pageant, Miss Latrobe, is having an experiment. She has decided that to show present time, having ranged through all history to show the present, what she'll do is simply turn everything off, leave the stage empty, not have any music on the gramophone. And this is a very brilliant idea of Wolf's, I think, because she's writing all this, she's describing what happens in that blank moment. And of course, mm. it's not blank at all. It's mm. full of the audience wondering what they ought to be doing, composing their faces. And then the social comedy of it takes a turn into fear and worry and peace and love and I think race. Mm. It's a very mobile, beautiful, strange passage. Mm. So absolute present time. Would you read it for us, please? Yes, absolutely. So the, the context, if you can imagine it, is there they sat facing the empty stage, the cows, the meadows and the view. Oliver said nothing. Mrs. Manraiser had out her mirror and attended to her face. All their nerves were on edge. They sat exposed. The machine ticked. There was no music. The horns of cars on the high road were heard and the swish of trees. They were neither one thing nor the other, neither Victorians nor themselves. They were suspended without being in limbo. Tick, tick, tick went the machine. Isa fidgeted, glancing to right and to left over her shoulder. Four and twenty blackbirds strung upon a string, she muttered. Down came an ostrich, an eagle, an executioner. Which of you is ripe, he said, to bake in my pie. How long was she going to keep them waiting? The present time, ourselves, they read it in the programme. Ourselves. But what could she know about ourselves? The Elizabethans, yes. The Victorians, perhaps. But ourselves? Sitting here on a June day in 1939, it was ridiculous. Myself. It was impossible. What's she keeping us waiting for, Colonel Mayhew asked irritably. They don't need to dress up if it's present time. I'll, I'll end there on that, on that note of the, the comedy. But it's very striking that nobody can imagine themselves being part of the action. Mm. Nobody wants to be the play. And yet, at the same time, there's acute self-consciousness at this moment, this acute self-awareness, even though it's very hard to imagine yourself as the ultimate moment in history, that history has absolutely come up to now. 
And that's something that I think I've noticed in this lockdown. We are very conscious of being at a historical moment and we're not quite sure what to do. We feel, to use to borrow a phrase, the hand of history is on our shoulders and many people are now writing blogs. My husband and I are keeping a plague journal, a la Daniel Defoe. It's a sense of recording what's happening because it's so unprecedented. It strikes me that, that almost every detail of, of Wolf's moment of silence applies today too. Um, I mean, she talks about all their nerves were on edge, they were exposed, the horns of cars on the high road. I mean, we don't hear so many cars now, but certainly the sirens going past, the swish of trees. She too notices that when the human clamour dies down, we hear nature again. Mm. She'll have the cows moving, people are watching them with a new consciousness. The machine that she talks about tick, tick, ticking is a gramophone that's been playing music appropriate to each of the eras, but the music of now is, is just them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> These people mm-hmm. here and now, and I think you're absolutely right that that's, that's us now. And also the, uh, the, the sharing of poetry, it seems to be, so eyes is fidgeting and then muttering four and twenty blackbirds strung upon a string. So changing the traditional verse there but there seems to be a lot of that about at the moment and people trying to support each other with poetry between the acts which is wolf's novel of greatest pressure as it were it's at this moment of wartime pressure of fear and anxiety it's full of this patchwork of quotations each one sort of snatched away from its context and Isa here has a very sinister misquoted version of the four and twenty blackbirds and she's thinking of nursery rhymes one moment snatches of, of Shakespeare or Cooper the the next moment and that seems to me to relate very closely to the current investment in literature on the one hand people are reading Tolstoy right this is our great moment for for war and peace for the very long concentrated read and yes in some ways that's that's true but my own experience of of this is that my concentration is absolutely shattered because every moment you turn on the the news or even a radio discussion program there's some new astonishing thing to think about and my, my concentration is down to about two and a half minutes, I think. Mm. Um, mm. And I too, like Isa, keep snatching at, at pieces of this, uh, a line or two from here and there. So that seems very true to me. And, and another thing is this sense that they're all sitting there and they're exposed wherever, whatever they're doing in that particular moment, they sat exposed. And have you, I don't know if you've, you've felt this, but I feel that our different realities are caught almost like flies in, mm. in amber by this. I mean, life was musical chairs and then the music stopped and we all had to sit down wherever mm. we were mm. mm-hmm. and stay there for quite a long time. And certainly here I am in my, in my Oxford house and I, I would normally be leading so many different lives. I'd be going to my office, I'd be seeing lots of people, but no, here I am. This is the version of my life that is being kept here. And and stock still, as if the the wind changed. Here Mm, we are. mm. This takes me back again to the idea of self-consciousness and being very aware of where you've ended up when the music stopped and and life has somehow become at once diminished into our own houses but also enlarged because we're we're so aware and it's almost as though things we're recording in blogs and journals etc we're thinking ahead as to 
how we will look back on this. And we're sent that there's a real sense that we're in the middle of history, in the grasp of history. Derrida had this idea of archive fever, where you it's sort of anticipatory retrospect, where you're thinking always about how am I how am I going to remember all this? I'm not sure that the people who are sitting here in this moment are thinking that they're very much in the moment. But then there's a bit bit that comes later where things turn quite dark. Something was going wrong with the experiment, Wolf writes. Reality too strong, she she muttered, Miss Latrobe. Carson, she felt everything they felt. Audiences were the devil. Oh, to write a play without an audience, the play. But here she was fronting her audience. But she had nothing. She had forbidden music. Grating her fingers in the bark, she damned the audience. Panic seized her. Blood seemed to pour from her shoes. This is death, 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 she noted in the margin of her mind. When illusion fails, unable to lift her hand, she stood facing the audience. I think in dark moments, quite a lot of people are feeling like that. The sudden realisation of things falling away and, and having nothing. What's the extremity of Wolf's language is on one level totally out of keeping with the fact that this is a, a village play. I mean, this, this nihilism, this language of nothing, of death, of panic, and yet at the same time, our tragedies are within our own lives. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is the stage of Miss Latrobe's life, and this is, her, this is her tragedy, this is the moment of failure. And then, astonishingly, we go from death into resurrection. I mean, this is so typical of Wolf that she will pack in an entire trajectory, an epic trajectory from descent into resuscitation within the context of 10 minutes of real time in a village pageant. Because what happens next is that there's a a little shower of rain. That's all it is, a few drops of rain. No one had seen the cloud coming. There it was, black, swollen on top of them. Down it poured, like all the people in the world weeping. Tears, tears, tears. Oh, that our human pain could hear how ending lies alone. Looking up, she received two great blots of rain full in her face. From the grass rose a fresh, earthy smell. And that's done it, said Miss Latrobe, wiping away the drops on her cheeks. Nature once more had taken her part. The risk she had run acting in the open air was justified. She brandished her script and the music began. Mm. It brought them together. This little intervention, this unexpected moment of rain has made it all all right for them. This little intervention that really is beyond words. So there's such a tradition in English literature, going back into continental literature as well, of the idea of tears expressing what words can't express. So in the middle of this silence, there's a kind of expression of silence with the rain that's also like tears. So we've spoken in the past about how large a role silence plays in in Wolf's works. How would you characterise it? I mean, what do you think that Wolf does with silence? Well, very early in her career as a, a writer, as early as The Voyage Out, she says, I want to write a novel about silence, the things people don't say. Mm. Actually, she gives that to one of her author characters in, in The Voyage Out. Uh, but it's clearly one of her ambitions too. And, and all her life, she's looking at the people who are not heard, the women, obscure lives, not heard in that way, but also not heard simply in the domestic sense, perhaps, of a long married couple who mm. never quite say, I love you anymore, but just express it through a, a, move of, a movement of hand and, and foot. 
but she uses the silent and the absent as the fundamental structuring feature of her greatest novels. So Jacob's Room is about this silent young man called Jacob, who for most of the time is not there. At the beginning, he's absent on the beach and someone's running along saying, Jacob, where are you? And, and it ends with him, again, not being there with just his, his boots. The Waves, a novel where six friends are drawn into a sort of circle of, of commonality around a central friend who is never there in the book. Mm, mm. And Percival is this sort of empty centre. And the whole novel is, is like um, magnetic iron filings drawn to this centre, but never actually meeting at that centre, leaving do, do, a, a gap. Do you think The Waves is possibly her most silent novel? It looks as though it's a kind of conversation between six people because it's inverted commas and it says, said Bernard or said Susan. What are, what, what are we hearing, do you think, in The Waves or not hearing? Such an interesting question because it could all be said aloud. And in fact, The Waves is a terrific book to read out loud. And she was thinking very much about how poetry and play and novel could come together. And so in a way, it's the voicing of silence. It's, it's thought given yeah. expression. So in a way, it's one of her least silent novels. But at the same time, I think we all know that the experience of reading it is being lifted on this rhythm that feels not precisely articulate, which feels like uh, the movement of the, the sea, actually. And, and we're lulled by it, we're carried. There's a kind of passivity in that being carried by it. And one does feel submerged. And I think at some level, it is certainly her most abstract and silent novel what do you what do you think i like your description of her most abstract and silent novel because i think we're listening to consciousnesses do whatever consciousnesses do they don't speak they are aware and the only way to express that is in words and so she expresses this in this sense of making it look as though it's a direct speech and, and attributing it to characters. But I think she's trying to do a bit like um, what Elliot's trying to do in The Wasteland, is it's the sound of silent thinking, which of course is not going to be articulate, but nonetheless this, you've got to try somehow to get it onto the page. And as, as those consciousnesses age, they seem to get more diffuse, they bleed into each other and they also get more complex their ideas and thoughts get more complex I think it's her most moving novel just a brilliant novel about consciousness over time which is which is saying about aging we can bring all of that thinking back to the extract we've got here from between the acts because of course again so much of what is articulated is silent thought here so all of what we have of Miss Latrobe, uh, panic seized her, blood seemed to pour from her. She's these are such big words. Yes. But of course, all you would have if you were watching this is a woman simply standing there silent. And this reminds and, me very much of the moment, the brilliant moment into the lighthouse, Mrs. Ramsay's party, the lunch that they're all having. And Mr. Tansley, who is a socially awkward young man, is being is feeling very awkward at this luncheon. 
And Mrs. Ramsey says, but doesn't actually say aloud to Lily Briscoe, the artist, if you don't say something to comfort that young man there, life will run upon the rocks. And it's a lunch. But nonetheless, the stakes couldn't be higher. I think she talks about waves of fire. And you absolutely know that life will run upon the rocks if Mr. Tansley is somehow not mollified. He's not meant to feel at ease. Then the lunch will be a disaster and life will be a disaster. So, yeah, the stakes couldn't be higher. All the time she's playing with scale in that way. Is it just a lunch party or or indeed is life and death involved here? And is this just a shower or is it the tears of all humanity? And, mm. and we all know that we're probably feeling somewhere in between those things, but that our, that our whole mobile emotional selves do mm. allow for it to be both. And especially and so now when we are so feeling so self-aware and what I said mm. earlier about the sense of our lives have become diminished but also exaggerated and all our gestures seem mm. seem significant somehow. We're very much aware of that at the moment. And if we characterise this piece of Between the Acts as, as about boredom and silliness and tragedy, that would also characterize this time I think which is full of, of being bored at home of wondering quite how time works we you know how long can it take and it's full of social comedy as we try to find our, our ways through the, the new reality and it's also full of moments of existential realization of just what this means the the great shower and possibly the the sense of a fresh smell rising from the grass after the shower. And, and for some of us waiting to be told what to do and for others telling other people what to do, whether yes. you know, you're know you in the government or you're the local person who's decided we're all going to get together and, and help each other, there's very much a sense of waiting to be given our part. It, it takes us back to the um, previous podcast when we talked about Shakespeare's sonnet about the imperfect actor or the unperfect actor. And here we are having to learn these scripts rather quickly and not not really knowing whether we're going to get our words right so on that note i think we will end our second podcast alex thank you very much and we'll look forward to welcoming you next time when i think we're going to talk about dh lawrence see you then